Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Welcome to Religion in the American Experience, a podcast series of the Digital First National Museum of American Religion, an institution dedicated to telling the profound story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, including the establishment of the revolutionary and indispensable idea of religious freedom as a governing principle. Listeners, thank you for joining us. And to join the museum effort officially and to receive, with a $200 donation, a signed copy of When Sorrow Comes, a book by Melissa Mathis about sermons that have come to the aid of America during times of national crisis, go to whensorrowcomes.subscribemenow.com. Again, that's whensorrowcomes.subscribemenow.com. America is a nation of immigrants, except for the indigenous peoples who were here before European colonization and the Africans brought here against their will and sold as enslaved persons. I just read this in a newspaper a few days ago, quote, administration is short of shelter space amid overwhelming immigration surge, record number of unaccompanied minors being held in adult cells far longer than legally allowed, close quote. This morning's paper had another front-page piece on the surge at our southern border. Immigration reform is a major, major policy task of the current administration and of several previous administrations. It is also important to note that there has been a recent rise in attacks against Asian Americans, which was addressed in an editorial of a major national newspaper over the weekend. The museum feels that a better understanding of how religious beliefs have influenced the attitudes and government policies towards immigrants throughout U.S. history can benefit all of us in our present moment. Today, we have a panel of fantastic scholars who will help us do a deep dive into this subject. Melissa Borja, Assistant Professor in the Department of American Culture at the University of Michigan and author of the forthcoming book, Follow the New Way, Hmong Refugee Resettlement and Practice of American Religious Pluralism. Grace Yukich, Professor of Sociology at Quinnipiac University and author of One Family Under God, Immigration Politics and Progressive Religion in America. Fengang Yang, Professor of Sociology at Purdue University and author of Chinese Christians in America, Conversion, assimilation, and adhesive identities. 
Sherry Rabin, Assistant Professor of Jewish Studies and Religion at Oberlin College and author of Jews on the Frontier, Religion and Mobility in 19th Century America. Christy Nabhan Warren, Professor and Chair in Catholic Studies at the University of Iowa and author of the forthcoming book, Meatpacking America, Immigration Reform and the Waning of Mainline Protestantism. I'm sorry, that's the wrong book. Her book is Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. And finally, Nick Pruitt, Assistant Professor of History at Eastern Nazarene College and author of the forthcoming book, Open Hearts, Closed Doors, Immigration Reform, and the Waning of Mainline Protestantism. Thank you each for being with us today. The time is short, and we need your help, so let's jump in. By the way, listeners, there will be a Q&A in the middle of the hour for a few minutes, and then for the last 10 minutes, so please ask your questions if you have any via the chat function. Any questions that we do not answer on this webinar, we will then answer via email. Okay, first, from each of you, I think the listeners could benefit from an opening statement uh, about what religion's role has been historically in American immigration over our history. Melissa, let's go ahead and have you start with that. Thank you so much. Um, This is such an important topic and so timely. Now, I'm trained as an immigration historian, first and foremost, and only began to study religion later in my career. So I'm really grateful to ground this conversation first in the perspective of immigration policy and immigration history. And one thing I will point out, actually, I want to make two very basic points that I think it's useful to center our conversation. And the first is that throughout U.S. history, religious hostility has been a powerful force behind xenophobic and nativist movements that aim to restrict and exclude immigrants. Religious difference is actually one of the primary reasons why white Christian Americans have perceived particular ethnic and religious groups as dangerous immigrant groups. My second point is something that I think that immigration scholars really could pay more attention to, which is the fact that religion and not just race and class and gender has been a force behind shaping um, immigration exclusions and restrictions. These things are, of course, very intertwined. We can't talk about race without talking about religion. But lots of times immigration laws, even if they're explicitly about race, have religion as part of its um, dimensions. So um, immigration laws have often had very disparate religious impact, favoring Christians, especially Protestant Christians, over other groups. Put another way, secular immigration laws that appear to have nothing to do with religion actually function as instruments of religious restriction and exclusion and have acted as tools of maintaining Protestant Christian power. And this goes for centuries. Looking back at the early 19th century with anti-Catholic sentiment and how that animated state level exclusion and restriction of Irish immigrants to the anti-heathen sentiment that animated Chinese exclusion, the anti-Semitism that shaped the 1924 Johnson Reed Act and most recently, Trump's travel ban, popularly known as the Muslim ban. So I think this is a really fruitful discussion, an opportunity for us to bring these two fields of immigration history and religious history together. Thank you, Melissa. Fantastic. Uh, Feng Gang, why don't you give your opening statement? All right. Um, uh, thank you, Chris. Um, actually, earlier uh, in email, you asked uh, a question 
what are some stories that we tell ourselves about religion and immigration that just does, do not square with the historical record. I would say one of such stories scholars and the media keep telling the public is that American religion has become de-Christianized because post-1965, new immigrants have brought many other kinds of religions. But that is not exactly the case. Actually, the most important change is the de-Europeanization of American Christianity. The word de-Europeanization may lead some people to think about the fact that Christianity has shifted to the global south. But th that has indeed happened, but that's not what I mean. I mean Christianity in the US has substantially diversified in terms of race and ethnicity. It is no longer a religion only among European or white Americans. The majority of the new immigrants since 1965 are Christian. Not only are most immigrants from Latin America either Catholic or Protestant, but Christianity has been the largest religion among most of the Asian American ethnic groups as well. The Pew Research Center conducted a survey of Asian Americans in 2012 and found that among Koreans in America, 71% are Christian. Among uh, Japanese Americans, 38% are Christian and only 25% are Buddhist. And among Chinese Americans, 31% are Christian and only 15% are Buddhist. Altogether, among the survey respondents of Southeast and Southeast, Southeast and Southeast Asian Americans, there are 42% Christian, 14% Buddhist, 10% Hindu, and 4% Muslim. In fact, Christianity is also the largest religion among Arab Americans. Nearly two out of three Arab Americans are Christian and only one in four are Muslims. Why does this matter? It matters because misperception can lead to xenophobia and anti-immigration sentiments. The fact is that many new immigrants are Christian and American Christianity has become diversified in race and ethnicity. To borrow racist term, uh, we may say that American Christianity is raced. Okay, thank you. Very important point you make there. Uh, Dr. Pruitt, Nick Pruitt, why don't you take the floor for three minutes? Thank you, Chris, for the invitation. And um, I think I'm going to borrow from Melissa's intro. She mentioned she was trained as an immigration historian and then picked up religion. I had kind of the opposite experience. I was trained as an American religious historian. And then when I got in my dissertation, picked up the immigration historiography along the way. And of course, now that's enough to qualify me to teach an immigration history class at a small liberal arts college. Um, and when I, so basically, I'm still a student of American immigration history, and it's, it's a pleasure to be on this panel and to learn from everyone that's here. Uh, your first question was, what's how we perceive religion's role in American immigration uh, over the course of the nation's history? 
And I think for me, it's, it's two layered. One is uh, the way that religion has um, helped cultivate identities uh, and even generational awareness among immigrant groups that have come to the nation um, and have helped really sustain communities and provide a sense of um, identity and even networking um, you know, as immigrant groups acclimate uh, to a new society and culture. Um, most of my research looks at how receiving cultures and societies uh, respond to immigrants. And my, my forthcoming book looks at uh, primarily white mainline Protestants and their responses. And um, one thing that I see there uh, from that history is, and how that element of the receiving society responds is that, that religion is central to how they interpret migration especially how they interpret diversity or pluralism in America. And uh, it's, it's, as we historians like to say, it's complicated. And, and one thing I've noticed is mainline Protestants in the 20th century uh, differentiate between different types of diversity. Uh, they, at least more liberal voices, are fairly open in the mid 20th century to cultural diversity. Uh, and they, they really latch onto that idea of being a nation of immigrants, uh, but when you put religious pluralism on the table, they tend to back away, uh, even the more progressive liberal voices, because uh, they are still, like Melissa said, really locked into that vision of the nation being a Protestant Christian nation. Um, and even in my research, more uh, liberal mainline voices are still very much attached, holding on to that that goal of maintaining a Protestant identity for the nation. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Sherry. Why don't we turn to you? Thank you. Um, so I think of immigration really as being about people from varying backgrounds around the world coming into contact and encounter with the U.S. state and the American population, right? And so religion is a factor on both sides of that, of that equation. Um, so on the one hand, religion can be, for immigrants, a motivating factor. And actually, right, the name of this event is God Says Come or God Says Go. And actually looking back through my sources, I found an antebellum Jewish peddler who said, God led me to make up my mind to come to America, <laughs> which I thought was, was great. There's, I like that, there's that extra step of God led me to then make up my own mind to come to America, which I think does get at the sort of complexities, right? Like religious freedom is, is a motivating factor in some senses, but it's rarely sort of that cut and dry and simple, especially for Jewish immigrants in the 19th and 20th century who were coming from places where they were kind of legally classified as Jews and restricted in various ways as Jews in ways that went beyond sort of matters of religion alone. Um, and of course, for many immigrants, religion also was a disincentive for, for, going, um, for going to a new country because there was an awareness that um, it might be challenging to um, live out the, a religious life as you, as you understood it. Um, in a new in a new place, um, and similarly, you know, um, religion can be um, a sort of self for immigrants, right? It can help ease the pains of immigration, um, but it can also contribute to angst and and anxiety and. Um, and sort of troubles, what Robert Orsi calls the inner history of immigration. So that same man who God led him to make up his, make up his mind um, complains in that same letter that a man who does not want to violate Sabbaths and holidays nor eat to eat forbidden foods cannot earn a livelihood for his family, um, right? So it, his religious um, convictions are, are creating problems for his integration. 
And uh, on the flip side, and towards some of what Melissa was saying, right, religion definitely also shapes U.S. policy and, and public attitudes in various ways. Um, and I did bring a little show and tell that I'll put for everybody um, in the chat. It's a um, late 19th century, uh, 1896 um, cartoon called The Stranger at Our Gate. And um, you see Uncle Sam sort of um, holding his nose at a poor looking immigrant who's carrying with him all sorts of baggage like poverty, disease, superstition, and Sabbath desecration. Um, so it's clear there that um, Jews' religious difference is sort of piling on to other understandings of Jewish difference to, to influence public opinion. And, and you see that also in um, the debates about immigration restriction in the early 20th century. Um, there's a, a fascinating book called Quarantine by Howard Markel, which talks about this sort of forgotten incident in 1892 when there was a cholera epidemic that basically got um, blamed on Russian Jewish immigrants. And um, he describes um, New York public health officials instituting a quarantine by ethnicity, which I think we can also interpret as quarantine by religion. Um, and I found that study and that kind of incident really, really fruitful and important to, to think about in, in our particular moment. Okay, great. Thank you, Sherry. Grace, give us your opening statement. Hi, so thanks for, for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here with, with all of you. Um, so I'm a sociologist, I'm not a historian. So um, so I'm, I can speak a little bit to the history because I, I do teach about it and certainly it undergirds what I, what I think about and write about. Um, but most of my work has been on um, religion and immigration in the contemporary landscape in the US. Um, so my book, One Family Under God, really focused on uh, some of the ways that people who, primarily white American Christians, um, but people who perceive themselves as um, allies to immigrants and want to do something uh, to make a difference in immigration policy and immigrants' lives in the U.S., um, the ways that they think about the religious changes that need to happen in order for immigrants to feel that they belong and to, to you know, be treated as though they belong by the state. Um, so the book really focuses on um, some of the actions and um, and policies that that those groups advocate for, in order to try to shift the religious minds of their their fellow Christians, or in some cases fellow Jews. Um, and uh, it's it's there's very few other. Um, people who are members of other religious traditions that are a part of the movement that I, that I studied. Um, so I think that really brings out the intersection of religion and race and immigrant identity um, in a powerful way that for the people who I talked to and who I studied, um, they really couldn't think about shifting immigration policy without also thinking about shifting what it means to be religious in America. And that it's not you know, moving from a more Christian nationalist and white Christian nationalists specifically viewpoint to one that's more religiously global. Um, so, I, you know, that's something that, that I think a lot about. Um, I also was looking before um, I jumped on today at some uh, recent data from PRI, the Polling Institute that came out in January. Um, and so it's some of the most recent data we have on, um, on Americans' attitudes towards immigration and how those are, um, different according to different religious traditions. Um, and a lot of it is what you would expect if you're someone who's listening to this, <laughs> this uh, webinar, uh, which is that you know most Americans do support 
for example, DACA, some kind of legal pathway to, um, to citizenship for people who are brought to the US um, as, as children um, and are undocumented. So most Americans do support that. So it's about 66%. Um, but the lowest percent support is among white evangelical Protestants. So only about 52% of white evangelical Protestants support something like DACA. And the range goes up to a high of 74% supporting DACA among black Protestants and people who are unaffiliated. Um, so there is you know, quite a range there with white evangelicals having the least support um, for a policy like DACA. I also just wanna note that I think, you know, we still often hear people talk about animosity between black Americans and immigrants and while certainly there is some of that, you know, Black Protestants were the most supportive of DACA, not, not, not the least supportive, the most supportive, right? So um, I think that's something really important to, to note. The other thing I wanted to, to raise that I thought was interesting is that in terms of opposition to the border wall, which was a major component of Trump's policy, right? And that Biden has um, said he, he's going to oppose and to, to undo um, certainly white evangelicals were, um, were the most likely by far to support a border wall compared to other religious groups. But what I found interesting is that Hispanic Protestants, so they do divide it out by Hispanic Protestants, Hispanic Catholics, white evangelical Protestants and black Protestants uh, and white mainline Protestants as well. But Hispanic Protestants were really different from Hispanic Catholics in their support um, of a border wall. And in fact, they were much more similar to white Christians who were not evangelical. So I think it's really important to think about, again, the ways that religion and race intersect, right? That um, it's not just about whether I'm an immigrant or someone you know, in, in my family's recent history was an immigrant. It's also about what is my religion? Um, what, is, what is my religious community and how does that shape right. the ways I think about these issues? Okay, great. Thank you, Grace. Christy, you're going to have the last word on the opening statement. Boy, it's really hard to go last after all these brilliant uh, colleagues here. Thanks so much for, as everyone said, thanks so much for the invitation to be here today, Chris. Yeah, so I'm my training is uh, in religious studies, and it's I've been trained in the history of American religions and also the ethnographic approaches. So I, my, my methodological home is really in the ethnography of religion. So I identify more as an anthropologist of religion. And when I think about you know, genealogy and sort of like where we are as scholars, you know, how we got interested in what we do. I always ask my students, so what led you to your major? You know, I think for me growing up as the granddaughter of immigrants from the Beha Valley in Lebanon, um, they were Maronite Christians, they were Arab. Um, I think I've always been fascinated from the time I was a little girl with those intersectionalities of work. Most of my relatives worked in the steel mill, um, Bethlehem Steel, the various steel mills in Gary, Indiana. So I've long been interested in those, inter what we call today, intersectionalities or that messiness, if you will, the complexities of, you know, um, individuals' identities, right, as migrants, as religious people, and then their work identities. And so I've always tried, I think, from a very young age, try to understand that. So my, my undergraduate thesis project you know, many years ago was I interviewed all my, my great aunts about what it meant to be a Lebanese Christian woman. And, you know, I was just, I think that was sort of my first foray into it. And so as an ethnographer, no matter where I've lived, I've always tried to tap into the local community and to really see what's going on to understand it. Currently, I live in um, Iowa and 
when I was thinking about, um, you know, where I saw some interesting things happening with migration, again, the intersectionalities of migration, work, and faith, it's very much in rural Iowa and the rural Midwest and, you know, migrants from the Northern Triangle, you know, El Salvador, um, Mexico, and Guatemala. And then we have Congolese, Sudanese, Somalians, Burmese. We don't think of rural America as sort of a hotspot for what what I what I would call, you know, the new immigration, what what some sociologists are calling new, the new immigration. But rural America, what I've discovered as an ethnographer doing this this work here for about the past seven years, is just a fascinating blend. And several of my colleagues here talked about the complexities. I'm really interested in what my sociologist friends would call sort of the host the host communities. And so what I have been very interested in the last seven years in understanding sort of white ethnic Catholics, like German, Irish Catholics and Czech Catholics, how are they waking up to the reality that their their church community is very much a changing community? So they're very much a small minority. And so I'm really interested in understanding. I'm really curious about what happens in Catholic parishes and Protestant churches too, when you have large refugee and migrant communities coming in and it's not always pretty, right? And so what I'm trying to do is to really, as a scholar, trying to push back against sort of those hot take tropes that we see in the media. I have found that indeed racism is obviously very much alive and well. Most of my white interlocutors, um, Iowans did vote for Trump. But when you dig beneath the surface, these folks are also also very conscientious about those feelings. They feel self-conscious. They're also really happy to see these newcomers in their towns, and they're really happy to see the downtowns revitalized. So it's it's a really complicated relationship. And um, one of the things I try to argue in my forthcoming book is I don't think anyone feels completely at home in the rural Midwest. I mean, Migra- the refugees and migrants don't from the places that I've mentioned, nor do the white Iowans and white Midwesterners. And so I'm trying to understand what home means. And I'm trying to understand to really dig beneath those intersectionalities. And my field sites for this new book project that's coming out this fall is I did field work in a couple meatpacking plants in Iowa, one pork and one beef, and did a lot of interviews there. And you also see um, sort of the work of religion, as, as um, David Chittister has called this, sort of the work of religion in these places. A lot of my Catholic interlocutors would wear scapulars or rosaries, would have tattoos that would really get them through the difficulty of, of work. Um, several of my priest friends in Eastern Iowa would literally, um, they, they were the ones I had the tours of the meatpacking plants with, at least the Tyson plant. And so I see activist priests who are really trying to make their religious spaces more inclusive and really trying to um, navigate um, the very uh, the very delicate realities in their own parishes without distancing the whites, but also being very welcoming to the new the newer comers. And so I'm very much on the ground these days, but as the very best ethnographers and sociologists, what we do is we want to contextualize that historically. Right. So I really appreciate what my historian colleagues are saying here. But but yeah, I okay. feel like I'm very personally invested in this story because I've, you know, I'm part of this story as the granddaughter of immigrants and um trying to always understand um, what it means to come to America what and what it means to stay and the role that religion has played. And I think it's very complicated. And so I'm trying to get okay. at that complexity in my work. So. Okay. Thank you. So now we have listeners who are, we all are grappling with the immigration uh, that's happening in America. 
Some of it is in crisis mode on the southern border. Others, other, of, other parts of it are not in crisis mode, but there's immigration happening all over, as we've heard. What are some stories that we tell ourselves about religion and immigration that just don't square with the, immig- with the historical record? And, and keep in your mind our listeners as we try to participate in the public square with these debates about immigration policy. Another way to put it is, what are we missing? So I'm going to ask that question first to Nick Pruitt, and then people can just jump in. We'll, we'll battle this question for a few minutes. Nick, why don't you uh, share with us what you're thinking here? Sure. Yeah, I, I'm thinking through that question. One thing I find that I think our current historical record overlooks is this expectation that we have a kind of a triumphalist history when it comes to immigration policy in the 20th century. Um, we as what I've discovered studying 20th century history is liberal policies don't always equal pro-immigration policies. Um, and uh, so, for instance, to give you an example from my research, white mainline Protestants were very opposed immediately after 1924 to Japanese exclusion. But their their hope was that Japanese immigrants would be given the same quota that other Asian immigrant groups were given. Uh, um, or were, they weren't even being given quotas. That's, yeah, let me correct myself. Asian exclusion was in place. Japanese immigrants were excluded. Um, mainline products were saying Japanese immigrants should be given a quota, but it should be basically a small token quota. Um, and so part of me is like, great, you're advocating for the end of Asian exclusion, or at least Japanese exclusion, but your alternative is just a meager quota. And so they really bought into that system. Um, and even further in the 20th century, when we get to the 1965 um, uh, naturalization immigration law on uh, that reform, it's always seen as like a hallmark of the 20th century. The reality is, though, it's one of the first pieces of federal legislation to begin to set a quota or restriction on Western hemispheric immigration. And um, and my, my subjects, these uh, mainline Protestants, completely missed that. And it speaks to a major blind spot in their advocacy for uh, Mexican-Americans. They, they did not see how that 1965 reform uh, actually began to put restraints and limitations on how many uh, uh, Latinx immigrate, immigrants could come into the nation. Um, so, yeah, my, I think my uh, contribution or challenge would be to think about, rethink policy in the 20th century in particular and how policies that are maybe advocated by liberal voices always often have unintended consequences and are not always as progressive as we think. Thanks, Nick. Anybody else join in? Other things to offer? Things that are missing in the conversation? Sure, I'll, I'll jump in for a second. So um, in my most recent book, it's a it's an edited volume called Religion is Raced, Understanding American Religion in the 21st Century. Um, and there's a chapter in that, that by Reese Williams that talks about um, some of the dominant um, ideas about religion and politics in sociology. Um, so he talks both about civil religion, um, Robert Bella's concept of civil religion, and also about um, Robert Wuthnell's um, concept of the restructuring of American religion during the 20th century um, and the ways that our stories about those things change if we think about religion as race. Um, and I want to just focus for a second on um, Bob Wuthnell's argument because this idea that um, the big story of 20th century American religion was this restructuring from a 
kind of denominational model to something that was more like liberal Christianity and conservative Christianity, right? That really fell along political lines. Um, it was, it's a really compelling argument. It, it made people think differently about religion. Um, it, it's held a lot of sway in sociology and I think it has a lot to offer. But what, um, what Reese really points out and what I think is relevant here um, regarding immigration is that it's really more a story of white Christianity, right? Um, and that, um, often uh, immigrant Christians and, um, and black Christians as well don't really fit into those categories as neatly of religious right and religious left, the way that we often think about those categories in, in public life. So, you know, Fengang made this point earlier and I think it's a really important point, which is that people often think about um, the big shift in terms of religion and immigration as one that's moving from Christianity to a more pluralist, religiously pluralist society. And there is some of that happening for sure, but really the shift, um, the important shift is the shift um, from a Christianity that's primarily white, um, also to a lesser extent black, but certainly in terms of power, primarily white, right, um, to a much more diverse American Christianity um, that really challenges um, what has often been treated as a default um, form of Christianity in America that's just very white um, in both its um, race and its culture. So um, I think that's that's one of the biggest stories that, that I feel like we've been missing in recent discussions. Great. I'll also add um, a, um, to the, uh, a myth that I think is, is important to, to sort of raise up is sort of how within religious communities that have immigrant pasts, um, Libby Garland uh, talks about a sort of myth of the good immigrant, um, right? That the like, we came here the right way narrative. Um, and she authored a really important study called After They Closed the Gates, which is about Jewish illegal immigration after 1924, um, right? Which Jewish illegal immigration, like to my students always sounds like confusing because that's not the image that we have in our mind. And um, Garland shows convincingly that that's not an accident that we have forgotten this like very robust history of, a, on the one hand, actual Jewish, you know, um, clandestine subversive migration and also a sort of deep association in the public imagination of Jews with illegal illegality and illegal immigration. And so um, there was this kind of willful forgetting of this older history um, that can have really um, troubling consequences, right? It can sort of blind particular communities towards empathy or solidarity with like later immigrant communities. Um, and it also places the burden on migrants themselves, right? Rather than the state that creates the laws that then are broken. Um, so she, I'll, I'll put that link in the in the chat to her book because I think it's it's helpful in, in thinking about sort of um, the stories we tell and sort of um, the sort of the, these narratives about um, illegality and how um, they are created by the state that creates the laws, not the individual human beings do, doing what human beings have done for millennia, which is move to seek out um, new and better situations and opportunities. Great, thank you. Yeah, uh, let me uh, say a few more words. Um, you know, thinking about the history of immigration in the U.S., uh, the Chinese were the first uh, ethnic group uh, excluded, right? The 19 the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act uh, prohibited Chinese uh, coming to the U.S. Then in the following 
several decades, uh, there are increased anti-immigration sentiments. Eventually, by 1924, immigration was very much cut off, even those from Europe. Uh, then it took several other decades uh, to coming back. And then in the 1965, uh, then there's new immigration law. Uh, talking about religion, I think, think about this. Uh, for the previous wave of immigrants from Europe, uh, many Catholics, Jews, and Orthodox Christians came. And there were anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish uh, sentiments. It took many decades for Americans and the new immigrants to observe and to adapt to each other and melt into the melting pot, if we can still use that metaphor, and then form the so-called Judeo-Christian culture as the American culture. And Will Herberg talked about the, the Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. Right? That's really this new cultural identity had not been achieved until the mid 20th century. Then it began to welcome new immigrants from Asia, from Latin America. And for the new immigrants from Asia, it is true that Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and many other Asian religions are probably much more strange to most Americans. So it may take longer time to absorb into the American culture. But I would say actually this is happening. You know, we find you know that we, I was lucky to be part of two major projects in the 1990s on new immigrant religion. One led by Steve Werner at the Uni University of Illinois at Chicago. One led by Helen Rose Ebal at University of Houston. We find that almost all all of the new immigrant religions are adapting to the Judeo-Christian culture by, for, for instance, adopting the congregational form of uh, religious communities and opening up uh, to welcome native-born Americans and other ethnic people to, to join their congregations. So um, change, I guess, uh, is the most important uh, yeah. Characteristic. Uh, immigrant religions are changing and American religion is overall changing. But that change is uh, we still see uh, a, uh, the American culture evolving. Uh, we do need to uh, think about the phenomena of de Europeanization of American Christianity as the major mm. uh, characteristic of the culture now. Great, thank you. Melissa, it looks like you have something to say. Yes, and it actually dovetails nicely with what um, Dr. Yang said. So I think one myth that's very common in what children learn in their schools is that America is the land of the religiously free. And I think about how often we center our religious history on this story of pilgrims seeking religious freedom in America. And I think the reality is that for a lot of immigrants, the United States and America is not experienced as a place of religious freedom. So there are lots of examples we can point to. For example, white Christian Americans actively working to prevent the presence of non-Christian congregations and communities in their neighborhoods and cities. People using zoning laws to prevent the building of new houses of worships, uh, uh, gurdwaras, uh, temples, mosques. These have caused 
controversies all across the country. And even if groups are able to secure uh, the building permits for building these houses of worship, they face harassment and intimidation by their neighbors. Um, one example in, in Sierra Leone, New Jersey, for example, found um, that a temple had uh, get out Hindus and KKK spray painted on, on their building. Um, so this is a really big part of the story that we need to lift up. It's so concerning to some immigrants that ref Hmong refugees, the group that I study, uh, they have been actually documented as saying that they are they have been hesitant to accept offers of resettlement in the United States because they worry that they would not be able to practice their rituals in America. So that's serious. And I, I think we need to disabuse ourselves of the fiction that America is the land of the religiously free. Yeah, I'll just, I'd love to pick up on what um, Melissa just mentioned. I've seen that on the ground and just my own field work. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, mostly in Catholic parishes, there's been a lot of really great literature on, on what do we call today's parishes? Do, you know, are they blended? Are they shared parishes? Are they, what are they? And I think a lot of it is actually a bit romanticized. And I think that what I've seen is really, in, in many ways, de facto segregated parishes. I mean, we've got very small groups of white Catholics, um, and then we've got much larger groups of Central American Catholics. Um, and I think this is this is not just a Midwestern Iowa thing. This is a this is becoming a nationwide phenomenon. And you know, I, I'd like to call this the parish basement uh, sort of female politics. So you know, I would be sitting down there having coffee and donuts with my white Catholic interlocutors. And then some of my Latina friends would come down and we would start speaking in Spanish and the, the white ladies would just sort of give me that, that sad, I look like, hey, what are you saying? We don't, none of them have bothered. I mean, I should, that's a little harsh, but there's not been a lot of effort to learn Spanish, let's say. But on the other hand, you have, you know, you have um, Spanish speaking Catholics who go to the English speaking mass, but you don't have English speaking Catholics going to the Spanish speaking. Um, I've always like the only one there. And so um, I think that, a lot of the language that we use as scholars, I think, really kind of furthers this myth in some ways, and these, you know, and de-emphasizes the very real micro and macro aggressions that, in, in my experience, at least, the Central American and some Burmese and, and African Protestants and Catholics are experiencing in their churches. They're being made to feel that uh, you can go here maybe until you build your own spaces, which indeed the Burmese Methodists have done in Columbus Junction, Iowa. You know, they saved up and they built their own space. And it's, you know, it's all in the in native foods, native languages, not dialects. And so I think that we need to really reckon. There's a, there's a reckoning that we need to have with, um, and what we've done as scholars, you know, um, and I'll include myself to sort of how am I, how are we furthering this myth of um, sort of the good white Christian and, and sort of the welcoming and the hospitality. I've seen it in action and I'm trying to, again, tease out those complexities, kindness and hospitality, but yet what are you doing in our basement? You know, we're still here drinking coffee and, and um, you're sort of an interloper. And so, yeah, I've really, I've really seen, I've seen the pained expressions on these women who are being told that you don't belong here, wait until, you know, after your Spanish speaking mass is over. And I see the pain, there's there's a lot of pain that is experienced by migrants. So, yeah, so thank you. Yeah, thanks for that. Let me uh, pause here and, and ask a question from one of our listeners, our attendees, and anybody can answer it. I'll read it here. For those who study how congregations or religious communities think about and respond to immigration, what seems to make the difference between, say, a Catholic parish 
that is welcoming to immigrants, especially in policy matters, and one that's not? What makes a difference for a mosque, a synagogue, or a Protestant church that is or is not pro-immigrant? I'm happy to try to say a little bit, I because the the movement that I studied, the New Sanctuary Movement, for my first book, um, did involve you know congregations that were sort of trying to take steps to become more welcoming um, to immigrants. Or I think they would use maybe a different term. The ones that went so far as to join the movement, um, they really saw themselves as um, as trying to kind of lift up voices. Of- because the, the language of welcoming, I think, can can be a little disempowering, right? Like, we are here letting you in. Aren't we so nice? <laughs> um, and instead, you know, the way that they typically tried to talk about it was um, immigrants are here. They're already doing amazing work. They're already doing amazing things. They're important members of our political and religious communities. We're just using the power and privilege we have to try to amplify their voices. Right. Um, And so, you know, I think it depends on what you mean by welcoming. Um, I think, you know, for some churches, what welcoming means is, well, sure, you can come and attend our church. And, you know, everybody, as Christy said, everybody will be very kind to you. Nobody's going to, you know, call you names or tell you, you know, go back to Mexico or learn English or whatever. Um, But we're probably not going to change anything that we do. Right. This is how it's done here. And um, we're probably not going to actually change anything to make this a community that actually represents you and where you belong. Um, So I I think, you know, there's there's really a range. There's communities where you will see a lot of anti-immigrant openly hostility, potentially. And then ones that are really trying to say, like, it's not about us. We're trying to amplify immigrant voices. And then there's the ones in the middle that, you know, are, are doing kind of traditional hospitality and um, kind of kindness approaches, but maybe not really willing to shift their own practices and cultures to really be more inclusive of immigrants. Anybody else want to help answer that question? Melissa, it looks like you're about to say something, or Christy. Go ahead, Melissa. Yes. Well, a lot of my research right now is on anti-Asian racism during COVID. Um, and I think there's a really interesting movement among activists to identify the relationship between Christian nationalism and Sinophobia and xenophobia that is converging in a very toxic way that is contributing to harm against Asian Americans. And so one thing I think is really powerful is for religious institutions to explicitly name the harm that they might be complicit in. So there is an effort, for example, Um, by Lucas Kwong at CUNY to identify all of the Christian churches that have been a home for politicians who have been active in using stigmatizing rhetoric that associates Asian American people with uh, coronavirus. And I think that's a very interesting thing. Um, To what degree should religious institutions take a stand and and, and identify the ways in which they are um, upholding xenophobia, xenophobia, um, and Christian nationalism in these very complicated ways. So this is a roundabout way of saying one thing that religious institutions can do to show their welcoming is to explicitly condemn racism and explicitly condemn xenophobia. And unfortunately, a lot of religious institutions are completely silent on the issue. So there's clearly room to grow. Thank you, Melissa. 
Christy? Yeah, I would love to just um, amplify, just to add to what Melissa has said here, um, and, and Grace as well. Um, in, in my experience, um, it's when the leadership really takes a strong action. So there's a fairly new bishop in the Diocese of Davenport, Bishop Zinkula, Bishop Z, as he prefers to be called. And Bishop Z is very much into immigrant rights. He has done um, accompaniments to ICE check-ins. He does, you know, regular volunteer at the, at the local worker house here in Iowa City. So he's really doing, he's really showing that, that praxis, but he's also, so he's telling and he's showing. And I think that he is really empowered. I've seen the ways that his leadership and his doing and, and saying how he's really empowered, um, you know, parish priests um, around Eastern Iowa, Central and Western Iowa, because they see that their bishop is really taking action. And it's led them to start doing some things um, like ice awareness training, um, partnering up with folks even at the meatpacking plants um, with ICE awareness and um, doing these sort of these really fascinating partnerships. So I think for, from the Catholic studies side, from the Catholic church side, I've seen when bishops are very vocal and are doing the work, the priests under them feel empowered to say some of the things and not just in their, in their homilies, but actually doing it out in the public. And so I've been heartened by that in the last five years, there seems to be a real uptick. So, okay. Yes, Sherry. Yeah, just to add um, from the, the Jewish perspective, I, there has been sort of um, efforts. I, one of the myths maybe to, to dispel about Jewish immigration is that it only happened around the turn of the 20th century. It happened before and it has been happening since. And there have been like Jew, con efforts among Jewish congregations to um, welcome and resettle, for instance, Soviet Jewish refugees um, in the 80s and 90s. I think that history kind of still has to be written. Um, there are also more recently congregations kind of sponsoring um, non-Jewish refugee communities. Um, I'm sure not all of those programs are, are perfect. But the other thing I just wanted to mention is that um, for some, right, the, that this can also um, make congregations, some congregations vulnerable, just to, to sort of flag that the attack in Pittsburgh um, was linked to the Jewish congregation, a times support for highest, formerly the Hebrew immigrant aid society. Um, so there are sort of risks for Jewish communities, um, although I haven't seen any signs of, of any um, abating of that kind of activism on their part. Thank you, Sherry. Let, let's go, Nick, did you want to say something? Oh, just very briefly, I yeah. just want to echo in terms of like trying to indicate where a church is at. I think Christian nationalism is huge, and I think it's important to look at the material culture in that church as well. What flags are up in the sanctuary? And also, how are they treating certain holidays uh, throughout the year? Uh, I think I think we often, or I think most Christian white Christian Americans overlook how how much white nationalism, white Christian nationalism has been entrenched in even our church practice. Um, so I think Over time. Factor to remember. Great point. Thank you. Let's go to a second question, uh, and then we'll probably uh, wrap up um, with the last one to each of you. Let me read it. I take Melissa's point about many immigrants not experiencing religious freedom, but rather than the analysis being their religious freedom is a myth, that religious freedom is a myth or not total or incomplete, couldn't we instead use that to understand religious freedom as, in practice, if not inherently, limited and exclusive? In other words, is that a failure of religious freedom, or is that just how it works? Any? I think it's a great question. I may, may jump in and address that. Um, and I, I completely agree with, with the 
the questioner's comments that, yeah, religious freedom as a discourse is inherently limited and exclusive because you have to be able to claim a religion in the first place. Um, and I think the point that was made earlier about the congregational form that Dr. Yang made, well, one thing that happens when a lot of immigrant groups come to the United States is they have to conform to the terms of religion. And these terms of religion are Protestant-centric. And you have to, even if you didn't organize yourself in congregations before or have a clergy before or call yourself religion before, you have to do so in the United States in order to get the benefits of the First Amendment. And so, yeah, I do think it's very problematic. We all know as religion scholars, the category of religion itself is very unstable, very problematic. And so um, religious freedom discourses in practice and inherently, I agree, are, are limited and exclusive. Okay, thank you, Melissa. Anybody else on that point before we move on? Okay, um, uh, I think uh, we need to understand religious freedom at different levels. At the institutional level, you know, that's the basic setup in the U.S., right? So the free exercise of any religion and no establishment of uh, religion. And then there's a cultural understanding, what is religion? I think many immigrants and refugees, uh, when they are from a country that's um, uh, underdeveloped and uh, coming to the U.S. is also a process of adapting to modern life or even postmodern life uh, from a uh, uh, you know before industrial industrialization before this uh, modern political institutionalization so yes there are adapt uh, adaptation uh, adaptation necessary in this process and it's a process of negotiation I think uh, the, in the U.S., uh, you know, what is American religion has evolved. It started with uh, the Protestant uh, dominance. Uh, again, it took so many decades uh, to reach the point by the mid-20th century when Jews were very much uh, accepted and uh, Catholics accepted, even though they're still, of course, they're still remaining anti-Semitism, anti-Catholicism, and of course, and other religions too. So it takes time to, uh, to, to blend in, to, to, to form a new culture. And since the 1960s, there are a lot of new uh, uh, different religions that have come in. I think it takes time. Uh, of course, during the process, there will be conflicts, there will be problems. Uh, but I am more optimistic about that because of the institutional setup of religious freedom principle. Um, actually, I want to uh, say some uh, a different aspect. You know, when we studied, you know, I my my study focused on immigrant religious congregations, uh, communities, not the you know white or Catholic uh, Protestant uh, congregations. And some of the immigrant congregations wanted to open up and welcome uh, native-born Americans or white Americans, right? There are Chinese Buddhist temple really st strongly encouraged to welcome, welcome uh, white uh, Americans. And there is a, a Chinese church, Protestant church, planted the church and dropped off their Chinese label 
uh, it's a community church. And the pastor said, we want to reach out to the community. It doesn't matter what's their race. And so we want to welcome everyone. But 20 years uh, later, I think there's still very few white Americans joining churches that led by Asian pastors, right? So there, of course, is racial issue, ethnicity ratio, foreign language issue, or other languages issue. Uh, I don't know uh, how long it would take for uh, white, uh, white American Christians to really open up to, uh, uh, to seek their religion freely rather than uh, stick to uh, those uh, white congregations. Thank you, Feng Yang. I want to introduce a, a question that wasn't in the narrative, but that has occurred to me, uh, and we can go over a little bit on this. And that the, the, the broad question is, what role does doctrine play, religious doctrine play over the course of American history in how Americans look at immigration? And I ask that from a personal standpoint because the particular faith to which I belong has a uh, a doctrine that basically says whoever comes here to America is here by the hand of God. So that's a pretty powerful doctrine, uh, how it flows out of me or any member of the church I belong to into the public square is a matter, as a personal matter, uh, how it's processed through an individual. But it brings up this idea of, of religious doctrine and its influence on individuals' reaction to immigration. Any, any thoughts on that as you've looked over history or, or grace as you study contemporary issues? Any thoughts on, on religious doctrines and their influence on immigration? I mean, I would say that um, the date, contemporary data show that it's not the main factor in determining how most religious people think about immigration and immigration policy, certainly. Um, so for example, there's been several times that um, Pew, the Pew Research Center has asked people about different issues in the public square and the extent to which they think of it as a religious issue or not, basically, whether relig their religion impacts how they think about that issue. Um, and each time, usually, about half of Americans say that their religion determines how they think about same-sex marriage and abortion. But only about 10% say that their religion really shapes their views on immigration. So most Americans do not see immigration as a religious issue in terms of their politics. Um, the data show pretty clearly now. So that's not to say that Doctrine doesn't matter for some individuals. I think it does, but I think um, there's a lot of different doctrines that religious groups have and um, people choose which ones actually end up shaping their politics and which don't, right? And so for most Americans, the religious doctrines welcome the stranger in Christianity, for example, you know, it's, <laughs> or, and also in Judaism, right? It's, it's in scriptures so many times but that's still not something that, that impacts most people's views of immigration. So um, okay. some of the brands about the perspective. Thanks, Grace. Anybody else on that? Nick? Uh, that's fascinating to hear that, Grace. And uh, I'm thinking in my head, like my subjects from like 80 years ago 
uh, it really surprised me how much particularly denominational identity framed the way that like white mainland Protestants responded to immigrant groups. Uh, in particular, certain denominations felt there were certain immigrant groups that were a better fit into their church. Uh, so the Episcopal Church here in the United States really gravitated towards missions work and cooperation with different Orthodox groups. And, and sometimes this was done as like an evangelistic tool, and sometimes it was more of just simple cooperation. I, there's a really beautiful example in, in New York City in the 30s. Tragically, there was a Armenian archbishop who was assassinated, and the Episcopal Church in New York City opened up their sanctuary for the funeral for the Armenian community. Um, but I've seen um, the Presbyterians kind of eyeing the uh, Hungarian Reformed Church. I think Baptists will take anyone who supports religious freedom. Uh, but it, it's interesting, about 100 years ago, these arguments of denominational um, uh, uh, sympathies with, with certain immigrant groups. And for me, the, the receiving culture, uh, at least 100 years ago, seemed to take their I, religious identities and even doctrine pretty seriously. Thanks, Nick. Christy? Yeah, just just really quickly wanted to follow up on um, um, what Grace and Nick were saying. Um, I think when I think about just all the different conversations and interviews I've had with refugees here in Iowa over the last seven years, from the refugee and migrant perspective, I'm not so I'm not sure if it's so much as a like an official doctrine that's driving them as their own personal relationship with God or La Virgen. And so the Latinas, and when I say Latinas, most you know, Central American, um, Guatemalan, um, from a couple different dialogue groups, um, Panjabal speaking mostly. Um to some Salvadoran women, mostly me Mexicanas from Mexico, when they would say, when I would like, what brought you here? It was God spoke to me. La Virgen was protecting me on my journey over La Bestia and, you know, through all the very violent encounters that some, several of these women were raped on the journey. Um, and they came because they felt like God was speaking to them and La Virgen and, and for their children. And so they, God wanted, and La Virgen wanted me to come to los Estados Unidos to have a better life for my children. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought about it. Like, I, I wouldn't think that, you know, it wasn't necessarily, I was like a personal, it was just this personal calling. This, I'm thinking of Tanya Lorman's work, you know, this her beautiful work on when God speaks, her sociological work um, and psychological, you know, psychological work. Um, I think for my interlocutors, men and women, it's not just women, um, it was God was talking to them, this personal piety. Um, some of them had some visions, uh, dreams, but they felt like she or he were speaking to them. So, yeah. Fascinating. So uh, we have our listeners who are staring at their TV screens, probably not TV screens, uh, phones, looking at the newspaper perhaps, and they're wondering how to participate in the public square with immigration issues. Uh, what what can they take from the historical record that can help them today? And anybody can speak up whenever they want. This is the final question. How can history help? And, and we've mentioned a lot of these things, but here at the end, let's coalesce, let's distill some of the most important things from the historical record that can help the historical, religious, and immigration record. 
One thing that um, we haven't explicitly talked about, but just I always think is important to remember is how recent immigration restriction is in American history. It was not sort of inevitable or um, eternal. So I think keeping in mind the contingency and recency of those restrictions and also their their real history of um, you know, religious discrimination. Um, it's really important to keep in mind not only what policies say on the surface, um, but what's the sort of implicit within them, um, and also what are their are their impacts. So I think you know, looking at policy with a critical eye, having empathy for human beings, um, and then the other thing that I think is important too is to think about you know, apart from this question of whether and how to welcome immigrants, like what kind of country do we want there to be for immigrants when they get here? Um, and I think history offers a lot of um, examples of, of where there've been missteps, right? Where um, life has been harder um, for immigrants and especially immigrants from religious minority communities um, than, it, than it had to be. And I think that should lead to some real soul searching um, for the country as a whole. Great. Thank you. Others? Christy? I really love what Sherry said. For me, it's all about empathy, understanding. And I have those narratives in my own family. Well, you know, the Al-Navhanis, you know, before it was Americanized in Navhan, we, you know, we came over the right way. It's like, well, let's, let's look at that. So I think trying to, you know, genealogy is really popular now, right? Genealogy, you know, 23 and me, everyone wants to know like from where they come from and where their ancestors are. And everyone's trying, it seems like it's really popular to try to understand where we come from and when our, when our people came over our, our, our families, right? And so just trying to think about perhaps one's own family history and perhaps why they came for economic prosperity, maybe for religious freedom and trying to see um, trying to understand just that this is part of the human condition, wanting to come over um, to better your children's life, your economic uh, prosperity for your family, and maybe do, doing some soul searching, as Sherry put it, like, why did your family come over? Okay, yeah, that sounds a lot like, and that's precisely what I would have conversations with, with my white Iowan uh, church ladies. Well, yeah, that sounds a lot like the Latinas I was just talking to upstairs, you know? So I think that empathy is, is I think, a really important, important thing, yeah. Great, thank you. Feng Gang, any final words from you? Uh, yeah, I, I would like to re-emphasize what uh, Melissa and Christiana, everyone said, you know, this uh, Christian nationalism at this moment, perhaps is something we really need to take uh, very seriously. And uh, the combination of uh, uh, conservative politics and religion, when that merged, actually that alienate many people, you know, many people leave the church. So there's a rapid increase of religious nuns, those who have no religion, no religious affiliation. So I think uh, race is a big issue to deal with. And uh, those uh, both uh, church leaders, uh, church members and non-religious people all need to think about this, um, deal with it. Okay. Thank you, Melissa. Any final words on this? So I, I acknowledge, I freely acknowledge that I've been kind of a downer throughout this entire conversation. Um, I own that, but I, I do want to close with a somewhat optimistic note. Uh, on one hand, we know that religious beliefs, communities, identities can really intensify opposition to immigrants. 
But I also want to highlight how religious commitments can intensify a willingness to include, accept, welcome, serve immigrants. Uh, and I study refugee resettlement. Refugee resettlement has always been unpopular throughout U.S. history. And in fact, if you look at opinion polls, it has become even somewhat uh, less unpopular. So if you think things were bad in 2015, it was actually worse in the 1970s with um, Southeast Asian refugees and worse with Jewish refugees. So my point is that in 2015, we saw lots of people voting in politicians, supporting in politicians who were rapidly anti-immigrant and anti-refugee. At the same time, we saw people showing up at the airport and protesting the travel ban. And we, this is moving later to 2017, but we, we saw lots of people really standing up for immigrants. And so I think we need to remember that religion can really intensify either impulse, an impulse towards inclusion or an impulse towards exclusion. And immigration has always been a bifurcated topic. You know, Americans have always been split on this issue and religion can intensify that split. Great, thank you, Melissa. Nick, uh, Grace, any parting words before we end? I would just echo what Melissa said earlier. Um, and, you know, Melissa said, well, one thing, right, that um, religious communities can do is to be really explicit about being pro-immigrant, right? And to really make that very clear. So I, I think at the very least, having a conversation in your religious community about these issues and um, being really explicit about your support for immigrants and of immigrants, um, that's that's a minimal step that religious communities can make. And don't get me wrong, I, I understand that for many communities, it does feel very radical to do that. And, you know, Sherry mentioned earlier that for, especially for more marginalized communities, it can actually pose a risk, right? Um, but uh, at the same time, I, th I think that's one of the most important things that religious communities can do. Thanks, Grace. Nick? I'd just like to say that I think I would encourage people to dig into the uh, the history of their religious tradition. And I feel like there's a lot untapped there. Um, you know, and just kind of an example in my research, I mean, there's a long history of of refugee resettlement after World War II. Um, and unfortunately, there was a lot of failure in the 1930s with the need for Jewish uh, refugee resettlement. But um, particularly like Christian communities in the United States were discussing these topics and, and oftentimes failed, but did make attempts. And I think that history is a very rich resource for today. I, I don't think we're necessarily in uncharted waters and we have precedents that we can go back to, good and bad. I think there are definitely historical threads of uh, justice and compassion in, in all religious traditions and the way they treat immigrants. Uh, but we also see some very dark history as well. And I think we just encourage people to, to dig into their own traditions history and see what resources are there. Thank you very much. We have been listening to Melissa Borja, author of the forthcoming book, Follow the New Way, Hmong Refugee Resettlement and Practice of American Religious Pluralism. Grace Yukich, author of One Family Under God, Immigration, Politics, and Progressive Religion in America. Fengang Yang, author of Chinese Christians in America, Conversion, Assimilation, and Adhesive Identities. Sherry Rabin, author of Jews on the Frontier, Religion and Mobility in 19th Century America. Christy Nabhan Warren, 
author of the forthcoming book, Corn Belt Religion. Um, I'm sorry, forthcoming book, new name, she said, Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. And Nick Pruitt, author of the forthcoming book, Open Hearts, Closed Doors, Immigration Reform, and the Waning of Mainline Protestantism. The startup Digital First National Museum of American Religion is both a place of convening for discussions such as these, uh, uh, such as the one we just had about current national issues that touch on religion, and a nationally recognized center for presenting, interpreting, and educating the public about what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, including the history of the revolutionary and indispensable idea of religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States. Listeners, once again, go to whensorrowcomes.subscribemenow.com where you can join the museum cause and for a $200 donation receive a free signed copy of the book When Sorrow Comes by, by, by Melissa Mathis that weaves the moving tale of sermons that have come to the aid of the country during times of American crisis. Melissa, Grace, Fengang, Sherry, Christy, Nick, thank you so very much for being with us today. You have supplied all of us with information that will help us in the coming days participate with more success in the public square about immigration issues and at the same time have helped us understand better how religion is at play in the American project. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The podcast series Religion in the American Experience is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.